our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It's good to be with you today. I wasn't here last week, and I think I hadn't got through two minutes of the service, and people are texting, are you okay? Are you okay? Yes, I was okay. All was well. So I had a very nice vacation last week, but always good to come home. And as I was on vacation, I was thinking about, you know, I'd sent the big idea or prepared it before I left on my trip, and my big idea was love God, love others, which perfectly went with the gospel reading, I thought. And as usual with me, God said, you're going to preach from 1 Thessalonians. I said, okay. And the big idea is still love God and love others, and I thought it worked very well. And one of the things I love about preparing sermons is I love to look at the context of where it comes from, look at the context of it. And so that's really kind of where this sermon comes from, is the context of this passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the context is really this, it comes from Acts 17. If you really want to know what's going on, you have to go back to Acts chapter 17. And it's there, really, that Luke records how Paul, Silas, and Timothy had come to Thessalonica. Things had not really gone all that well for them at Philippi. They weren't doing all that great in Thessalonica either. However, for about three weeks, Paul had proclaimed the gospel. He explained that Jesus was the Messiah, the king who reigns, the one who offered himself as a sacrifice for us. And Luke tells that some people came to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus as a result of his preaching and teaching. And some even put their trust in him. However, there was many that opposed the message and opposed the messengers. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17, so a little bit ahead of where we are today, Paul refers to being torn away from Thessalonica. He was torn away They didn't really want to leave. They wanted to stay. They wanted to continue to preach. But they ended up having to leave at night for fear of their own lives. And with that sudden departure, the people who opposed them in Thessalonica began to damage their reputation. And so in these verses that we read today from 1 Thessalonians, Paul's kind of addressing that in verses 2 through 5 where he says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. You see, the people that opposed them were probably saying things like, look at these guys, they came here, they told us all these things, and then they vanished in the night. How can we trust them? How can we trust these people that come and just leave? Their message can't be right. But Paul goes on to say he wasn't there to flatter the people. He wasn't there out of greed. 
He was there really for the sole purpose of God's call to go and preach the gospel. And he's trying to win these people back. He's trying to explain to them what is going on and that his motives are pure. And you see, that's really the context based on Acts 17, a very condensed context. But the context of what's going on here is that Paul and Silas and Timothy and these guys have been there and they're having such a hard time, but they came back. They wanted to stay. And as you look at this context and look what Paul said, he said not only did they come to share the gospel, but they came to share their lives. They came to share themselves with the people. And as you think about Paul, Paul really had it rough. Paul had it in a really different sense than we probably have it here. He was imprisoned, he was beaten, he had been shipwrecked, he had been rejected, he had been opposed, and yet he still was willing to share the gospel. Even under those conditions, he said, I'm coming back. Even when he had to leave at night, he said, I'm coming back because you were so dear to us. I think most of us would probably be saying, really? These people are dear to him? Many opposed him? They had to leave? Why would you go back? Why would you go back? There's so many other areas you could go. Go somewhere else. But Paul didn't go somewhere else. Paul went back because he loved God so much that this is where God had called him to be. You know, I was thinking about this and I was thinking about Jonah a few weeks ago. That was the reading at the school service on a Wednesday. And I thought how opposite Jonah acted throughout his time. And how often I'm more of a Jonah than a Paul, that God calls and I go the other way. And then I go, all right, fine, I'll go do it. And then you do it and then you're upset with the results because it didn't go the way you thought it should go. And I thought, how often do many of us react that way? Because even when we go, okay, Lord, I'll do this, and we do it, and he acts and he moves, and then we go, well, that's still not the way I wanted it to go. I'm like Jonah, just, I want these people taken out. I want this over with. I want this done. But I think we need to learn to be like Paul. We need to use Paul as an example. Because we don't know really what happened with Jonah. That one kind of cuts off that story. I hope he came around. I hope he finally said, okay, Lord, I love you the most and you're in control and all is well. But Paul, we see over and over that he runs into these areas where he knows he's opposed, where he knows it's going to be difficult, and he says, okay, Lord, I am there. You see, when we love God most is when we will love others the best. And so that's why the big idea for today is really just love God and love others. And that's such a simple, simple thing. And yet as I was up in North Carolina and kept thinking about this sermon, and it, I don't think I started writing it really until Wednesday, but as I was thinking about it, I kept wrestling with it. I kept wrestling with it because it's not, it's simple, but it's not. Because my flesh wants certain things. I want to do things a certain way. But when I say I love God the most, I can't just do things the way I want to do them. And it changes everything. Because a disciple's first love is Christ. 
And in our gospel reading today, and I'm reading from Mark, Jesus said, the most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. There's no other commandment greater than these. You see, when we love God the most, we understand the depth of love and grace. We really understand that when we start to study the Bible and pray and build that relationship with him, we really start to understand what love is. What love is. We base love so much on a feeling today. How we feel. Oh, I feel in love. I feel this. And then someone does something to us that we don't like and we go, oh, don't love them. I want nothing to do with them because they, mm -mm, I'm done. And yet we look at God and we say, God, you love us even when blank. Even when I do all these awful things and sin and all those things that I do, you still love me and are there and are calling me back to you and saying, repent, come back, I love you. When we truly understand that, we really will understand the depth of his love and we can start to extend that love to other people. You see, in the world today, people and things and dreams, they're really always battling for our love. They're always battling for our allegiance. There's so many things that want our attention and our affection. And it's easy to say, well, I can see these things, I can touch these things. And so we kind of push God to the side and say, well, you're the co-pilot, I, I love you, but I don't love you the most. I don't love you the most. And see, until we get that, we really can't love people. You know, and what does that look like? It looks like Luke 14, 26, that says, if anyone would come after me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. God isn't really saying for us to hate these things, but God's saying in comparison to how you love me, all of this falls underneath it. Because he wants our affection and our love the most. And Luke goes on in verse 33 of chapter 14 to say, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. It's a hard call to love God when you think all of those things, all of these things that are important to us, all these things that we care about so much, things that we love. And God may say, leave them behind. He may say, leave those behind when you follow me. You can still love them, but the love for them is not going to be the same as the love for me because you need to love me the most. And you see, when we get that peace, when we can honestly say, okay, Lord, I'm following you wherever you want me to go. I'm following you even if I do have to give up everything that's important to me in this world. We can give it up because we can say all of these things do not compare to the love of God that comes through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And when we get that, we start to love people differently. And you see, a disciple loves his neighbor as himself. And we love our neighbor as ourself because God first is our first love. 
And understanding that love that he has for us and that grace causes us to love people. It functions a lot like faith and works. Faith without works is dead, but our works don't save us. Our works don't save us. And so if we have faith, we naturally, though, will have works to show our faith because that's the Holy Spirit working in us and through us and changing us. And if we love God, our love for our neighbor will become natural. We'll start to love those people that maybe we struggled to love before. But if God is not the love of our life, then there's really no way that we will truly love our neighbor as ourselves because we're always going to love ourselves the most. We're always going to put ourselves above everyone else. And you see, there's so many Bible verses that talk about loving one another, loving our neighbor. In John chapter 13, 35, it says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciple, if you love one another. In 1 John 4, 16, it says, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us, God is love, and whoever loves lives in God, and God in them. In Galatians 5, he says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And in 1 Peter 4, 8, he says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Do we love our neighbor in this way? Are we people that are very critical of our neighbor? That we're trying to outdo the person next to us? You know, it really goes with, I was thinking, the theme at the school last week, or two weeks ago, was be humble. We've talked about being humble in church, and it really goes back to, we do have to humble ourselves before God in order to love God supremely and first. We really do. Because until we get to that point of being humble before God, we're not going to get it. We're not going to get it and we're not going to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're always going to bump ourselves up. You know, I watch the kids when I'm out at youth group or over at the school. And of course, as kids, we're always trying to outdo the other person, it seems like. The thing is, I realize that continues into adulthood. We still play the comparison game, and we still try to outdo one another and say, well, I'm doing better than this person. And we have some scale that we set of why we're doing better. We have a better position, a more successful job. We make more money. We're better athletically, whatever it is. We have that thing that we say, this is what's making me better, and we compare ourselves to others and say, well, I'm doing better than them. And see, as people that are humble before God and loving God, we can't be people that compare ourselves in that way to others. Because God has made each one of us uniquely and given us certain gifts that we use in certain ways. And he didn't say, well, go out and see whose gift is better. I think he told us just to use the gifts that he's given us. To go out and use that to serve other people. As I was preparing for this sermon, I ran across this, and it was, it was something that's it's kind of bothered me a little bit, and I've really pondered it over the last few days, and I, I called someone that's in college and asked them their opinion on it. But there was a pastor that said this. He said he witnessed that many conservative young adults came to New York to work on their undergraduate degrees. Here they met people they had been warned about, the people with liberal views on sex, politics, and culture. 
Despite what they had been led to believe, these people were kind to them. So their views on these people changed, and when they went home and told their parents, they got a very negative response. And so these children went back to their undergraduate degrees and began to rebel and accepted the views that they were told not to associate with. And this pastor, I guess, did some research on this, and that that bothered me as I thought about this. I thought, the very thing that sometimes we teach our kids not to run towards, they run towards. And I said, why does that happen? Why does that happen? We try to lay a good foundation for them in our families. We try to lay a good foundation for them in the church, at youth group. And I read that, and I thought, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. And so I called someone yesterday, and I said, Let me read you this quote. You're in college. What's your opinion on this? And she's got a good foundation and and is is an excellent student and and Christian and and very on target. And I said, what do you think about this? And she goes, well, I think what it is. And she goes, I've witnessed that in college. I've witnessed that. I said, yeah, we, we hear about it. We hear about people changing their views on things when they get to college because of the culture that they're in. And she goes, it's not really so much, she goes, they do change their views. She goes, but I think the reason people change their views that have been raised in a Christian context is because all we really hear in youth groups and in church as kids a lot of times is the do's and don'ts of Christianity. This is what you do if you're a good Christian, and this is what you don't do. And she goes, as we hear those things, and then you go off to college and you see this other view of people that are all about maybe love or acceptance or whatever it is, she goes, that looks a little bit appealing. And she goes, and then we come home and we talk to our parents about it, or our youth pastors, or our pastors, and she goes, and they tell us, stay away from it. Stay away from this. This is dangerous. Don't head in that direction. She goes, I've heard it, had it said to me. And she goes, I've realized in being in college, as she goes, what we were taught was the do's and don'ts, but we weren't taught about the relationship with God. We weren't taught about having a relationship with God, and she goes, and therefore, she goes, I'm grounded, I'm good, she goes, I know the right direction. She goes, but so many have changed because they don't know that it's about a relationship. It's about a relationship with the living God that sent his son to die for me, and she goes, as a result of that one, it's just do's and don'ts. She goes, it comes so legalistic, she goes, obviously, I'm going to join the other side of this. She goes, I'm going to take on a very secular worldview instead of a biblical worldview. Because the secular view looks loving and accepting. And she goes, the biblical view looks everything against that. She goes, it's because we're not really taught about the love of God and how we're supposed to love him and run to him and be in this relationship with him. She goes, we're just taught about what a good Christian looks like. And she goes, somehow that's left out so often. You know, I think here at Christ the King, we do a good job of teaching about the relationship with God. But I thought how hard we need to work at teaching our children it's about a relationship and not just the do's and don'ts. Because that's the only way we're going to fix this problem. Because when we do that, we're really loving our neighbor and when, the, when our students and our children encounter these people that have different views than we have, hopefully they'll love them enough to invest their time sharing the gospel with them. Sharing the gospel with them, because that's what we're called to do. 
And so it's so hard when you think people go off to school and fall away from the faith, but it's also hard to think that they've been raised in the church, some of these people, and they turn because they never heard about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what turns them off, and that's what turns them on to a very secular view. I like what C.S. Lewis had to say about this. He goes, we're told to love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love yourself? When I look into my mind, I find that I do not love myself by thinking about, about myself as a dear old chap or having affectionate feelings. I am myself, I, I do not think that I love myself because I am particularly good, but just because I am myself and quite apart from my character. I might detest something which I have done. Nevertheless, I do not cease to love myself. In other words, that definite distinction that Christians make about between hating sin and loving the sinner is one that you have been making in your own case since you were born. You dislike what you have done, but you don't cease to love yourself. You may even think that you ought to be hanged. You may even think that you ought to go to the police and own up and be hanged. You see, love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steadfast wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. And as Christians, our ultimate good is that people come to know and love Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. That's the ultimate good that we want for our neighbor. We want them to know this. We want them to accept this. We want them to be in that relationship with Christ. It's not just the do's and don'ts of Christianity. It's about the relationship, because when we get the relationship, the Holy Spirit naturally works in us and transforms us and changes us. But when we go in with the do's and don'ts, and that's what the kids come out of the church with or the youth ministry with, they don't get that the ultimate good is spreading the gospel. Because they don't know what it means really to be loved by God. They just know if I do these things, God's going to love me. And if I don't do them, God's not going to love me. And that's their takeaway. That's their takeaway a lot of times. And I think that former student of mine was right. That's when people change. I hope we're a people that really do teach what it means to know, love, and serve Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. And that we do love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what Paul wished. That's why Paul kept going back. Because he loved God and he loved the people that God had called him to serve. He was willing to go back and put his life in danger and do those things that were hard and tough. And say, your will be done, Lord. I liked what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He said, to abide in love means to have open eyes, to be able to see what only a few can see. Most important is that one allows oneself to be interrupted by God. About how true that is. When we love people, we are going to have to be interrupted by God. And I go back to that a lot. I've, I've, I've got that verse written down in my computer and I look at it frequently because I think of how many times during the day I'm interrupted by things. And most of the time it's because God is really interrupted and the things that I thought maybe were important for that day aren't quite so important. Maybe God has a different mission that day. Maybe God has a different way that I'm called to love my neighbor and it's not the way that Matthew thought it should be that day. 
and we really can't kick back and throw our heads back and go, oh, not right now, Lord, not right now. We really have to make it where we love God so much that we're excited when he interrupts us. And he says, this is the mission I have for you now. This is the person I've called you to witness to. This is where I want you to be. This is who I placed on your mind to pray for, to pick up the phone and call, to go visit, whatever it might be. We have to be willing to be interrupted by God because that's part of loving God the most and loving our neighbor the best. So how do we love? Do we love as Christ love us, loves us? Or do we love in such a way that it turns people off to being disciples of Christ? Do we love in such a legalistic fashion that it might turn others away? Or are we loving as God has loved us unconditionally? In 1 John it says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has he has, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we also have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I would encourage you today to start loving your family first. Those are our first neighbors from the time we're kids. How well do you love your family, I think, reflects how well you love God. I hope we start loving our families and then ripple out to those that God has placed closest to us. How are we loving them today? And I hope each morning this week we'll wake up and say, Lord, I'm ready to be interrupted by you. I'm ready to be interrupted by you. Show me, Lord, today who you want me to be a good neighbor to, who you want me to love today. And I hope we, like Paul, respond to God's call on our lives to love God and love others, to fulfill the Great Commission. Amen.